Hey, you slaves, stay at home, stay glued to your TV. Podcasting from an underground studio flying under the radar, this is Dan. By day, I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience, and by night, I retreat into my subterranean lair and dig deep into the thoughts of mankind. And I'm Dave, sitting firmly atop the Great Canadian Shield in Northern Ontario. I'm a pastor by profession, and a part of that includes unmasking the messaging that comes at us each and every day. You're listening to the Knock Informed Podcast. Where we're trying not to speak moistly into the microphone. <laughs> Welcome everyone to episode 20 of the Not Conform podcast. Speaking moistly, that's got to be the yeah. Canadian meme of the, maybe the month. <laughs> uh, and just for our international listeners, we should play the clip uh, of that. Dan, do you have that clip? Yeah, it's a phrase uh, used by our fearless leader, Justin Trudeau. If people want to wear a mask, uh, that is okay. It protects others more than it protects you because it prevents you from breathing or, or, or speaking uh, moistly on them. Oh, what a terrible image. Uh, but Yeah, we want to make sure we don't speak moistly, Dave. <laughs> That's right. Well, actually, those new filters you have uh, help quite a bit from uh, filtering out all that stuff. Uh, but Dan, really, you should have played, <laughs> you should have played this clip here. Listen to this. These are the things, the things we know. <laughs> prevents you from speaking moistly <laughs> speaking moistly keep two meters apart speaking moistly yeah speaking moistly this is a not conformed show not speaking moistly with Justin Trudeau speaking moistly what a terrible image <laughs> yeah Dave you definitely outclipped me on that one well, I was looking at your clip list and you have something like 50 clips loaded up on your clipboard, I think. And so I figured I better get it in at the beginning here while I can. <laughs> yeah, I won't use all those clips. Don't worry. Hey, yeah. Uh, speaking of clips, I hear your girls have a COVID jingle that uh, apparently even made it into the end of show mix on the No Agenda podcast. Yeah, that's right. When, uh, you know, school was canceled, they were pretty excited. So they made a song about it. Listen to this. At first we got the news. Oh, it was quite a shock. People rushing to buy their toilet paper, but the stores are out of stock. But it's okay, cause I'm on a COVID vacation. Got all the toilet paper I need. School's cancelled all across the nation. All thanks to COVID-19. Because of all the social distancing. It's just my smartphone and me. Yeah. Oh, it's the oh, perfect yeah. vacation. All thanks to COVID nineteen. Yeah, the COVID staycation. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's continuing along for a lot longer than we'd hoped. Yeah, but uh, we're gonna put a link to that uh, the YouTube video in the show notes so you can check it out there yeah and send it to other people so they get a lot of views they get a lot of listens uh so that they can get that counter up <laughs> yeah exactly um so dan we should tell our listeners also that we were recently interviewed on the issues etc podcast and radio show uh that was our last week's endeavor covering the psychedelics yeah that's right we uh talked about the re-emergence of the psychedelics in the west uh, and I think we were interviewed on uh, episode 1073, 1073 on the Issues Etc. podcast. 
That's right. It's 1073 Psychedelic Drugs, April 16th, 2020. And I'll, again, put the links in the show notes for that. Yeah, Dave. Actually, this morning I got a text from one of our listeners, Paul, and uh, he directed me to their response to uh, emails. And uh, listen to this. Marilyn writes, episode 1073 regarding psychedelic drugs was outstanding. I listened to Scott Adams, Jordan Peterson, Mike Cernovich, and others who discuss culture slash politics. Their comments about magic mushrooms and other drugs expanding their consciousness alarm me. Adams said magic mushrooms changed him completely and convinced him God was just a chemical brain change, although he likes certain Christian ideas. Peterson seemed to have the Holy Spirit circling him in his Bible talks, but never landing. Daniel and Pastor connected all the dots for me with this broadcast and honor this broadcast and to the glory of God. I mailed a donation today to Issues Etc. for $1,000. Thank you, Marilyn, for listening, and thanks for the generous gift. Woohoo! Isn't that great? <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's great. Well, they should send us a cut of that. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good that they're supporting those guys because we are completely self-supported. Yeah, of course. Uh, but uh, of course, yeah, it seems like uh, we might have uh, saved another person from the clutches of Jordan Peterson. Yeah. And hopefully they'll come and check us out on the show and check out both our psychedelic deconstruction episodes and our Jordan Peterson deconstruction episodes. So it, it, it feels good to to have actually made a difference and uh, that's just fantastic. Yeah, it's good to have an impact. Okay, so let's move on to the content of this episode because here we are amid this crazy COVID chaos. All over the world, there are lockdowns, there's social distancing, and people in isolation. Nearly the entire developed world has ground to a halt as people are sequestered away in their homes and only those involved in services deemed to be essential services are allowed to go out about their business. And in Canada, bylaw officers and police officers are enforcing the lockdown and uh, citizens are being fined all over our land. This is a crazy time. Crazy, Dan. And uh, because of these recent events, we want to interrupt our discussion of pagan witchcraft and magic and break down this crazy COVID chaos all around us. And don't worry, I, I still have a bunch of great material and I know you do as well on the rise of witchcraft in North America. And we're definitely going to get back to that. But this this COVID situation has hijacked everything and things are moving fast and we want to do the deconstruction while things are still relevant and going to get this stuff off our minds. And uh, so Tara, you, you wrote us a great question following up on our last episode and we're going to answer it, I promise, eventually. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, but today we want to start by examining the, the messaging that's coming from our government and from our media, all the messaging that's coming at us during this crazy COVID chaos. And Dan, I think we got our episode title there. So yep. we want to talk about how it was designed to engineer our behavior and our worldviews. That's, of course, what we do on the Not Conform show. All right, let's get to it, Dave. This is the Not Conform show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. All right. So first of all, let's consider how some of the messaging is generated, how it's it's specifically crafted. Yeah. And maybe we'll start with an example message. Here is our Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, since we're featuring him on the show. And this is from his Enough is Enough speech. By recognizing that a lot of people have now been stuck at home for a week or more because of COVID-19. If that's starting to take a toll, it's understandable. But we can't afford to stop now. I want to be clear. Social distancing 
physical distancing is the single best way to keep the people around you safe. What does that mean? It means keeping two meters between yourself and someone else. It means avoiding groups. It means staying home as much as possible. If you choose to ignore that advice, if you choose to get together with people or go to crowded places, you're not just putting yourself at risk, you're putting others at risk too. Others at risk. Your elderly relative who's in a senior's home or your friend with a pre-existing condition. Our nurses and doctors on the front lines. Our workers stocking shelves at a grocery store. They need you to make the right choices. They need you to do your part. We've all seen the pictures online of people who seem to think they're invincible. Well, you're not. Enough is enough. Go home and stay home. This is what we all need to be doing. And we're going to make sure this happens, whether by educating people more on the risks or by enforcing the rules, if that's needed. Nothing that could help is off the table. Yeah, you can hear the condescension as Trudeau talks to the population as if we are a bunch of children scolding us for our misbehavior. And he uses language to encourage voluntary compliance, but then says that uh, they're going to do whatever they need to make sure the population follows the rules. So nothing is off the table for Trudeau. Now, Dave, if you listen carefully to Trudeau's speech, you'll notice that he focuses on making the case that if you don't comply, you will hurt others. And that's a big chunk of the speech there. Now, how might one arrive at that particular message? After all, he could have tried to primarily make the case that you should comply for your own good, right? You can apply to people's selfish needs. But instead, he focuses on the point that you Mm -hmm. should comply because not complying will hurt other people. I found that very interesting. You know, as I was catching up on the scientific literature on COVID by reading papers published in Nature and JAMA and other places, I came across some interesting material that's related to just this issue. I found a paper published in Nature Human Behavior titled, How Behavioral Science Data Helps Mitigate the COVID-19 Crisis. And I'm going to give you a series of quotes from this article. Now, listen very carefully because you're going to see how they're actually engineering the messaging. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Go ahead. All right. Quote, in this pandemic, fast and massive behavioral change is key. I'm just going to string these quotes together, by the way. Uh, Mm -hmm. Relative to previous epidemics, quote, a lot has changed. The virus, the ways people gather information and the ways authorities such as the WHO reach out to people via social media, assessing these variables is of great relevance. Our goal, and this is the body that's, that's writing this message, is to enable the government, journalists, and health organizations to be aware of the psychological situation, implement adequate responses, correct misinformation, and also facilitate behavioral change, whether with communication measures, policies, or restrictions. Okay, so did you hear that there? Mm-hmm. Facilitate behavioral change. So it's engineered. It's engineered, that's right. Uh, Let's go on. Quote, this initiative aims to offer a rapid evaluation tool of what the public thinks and feels, including which fears are relevant, the prevalence of hoarding behaviors, discrimination and stigma, trust in information sources and trust in the government. 
We publish a <laughs> weekly update, yeah, for project partners, government officials, and journalists registered with Science Media Center Germany, end quote. So this is, I guess, the Science Media Center Germany. And then, Dave, they highlight one of their findings. Listen to this, quote, We also found that willingness to restrict one's everyday life to flatten the curve and lower the burden for the healthcare system was high. However, when the motivation was to protect vulnerable others, the willingness to restrict one's everyday life was even higher. This is a very important message. Communicating the social norm is a key strategy in health communication, end quote. Yikes. Communicating the social norm is a key strategy. Dan, that's a, that's a good, that's a golden nugget. <laughs> yeah. And notice that the, that key social norm was uh, people would be more compliant, right? If they were told yeah. that staying at home will save other people. Interesting. So what you're getting here is a peek into how the sausage is made when it comes to WHO, the World Health Organization, government and media messaging. There are research groups that survey the population and determine what's the best form of messaging that will lead to the desired behavioral change. In this case, it means focusing the messaging on the idea that your non-compliance will hurt others, which is exactly what we heard in Trudeau's speech. It's scientifically driven. It's, it's engineered. Your behavior is being scientifically engineered. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're disseminating this message through people in the public sector that you have been taught to trust. And here's Trudeau again. Today, we're launching federal advertising campaigns. You'll see faces that you know and trust. People from our cultural sector getting out the recommendations from our healthcare workers. Not having heard this message won't be an excuse. We're reaching everyone. Listening is your duty and staying home is your way to serve. Yeah, so they're going to put people that we know out there presenting the message to us, people that we trust. This is so well-crafted and organized. It's very impressive. Yeah, wow. This is messaging from Canada's finest. Hey, you slaves, stay at home. Stay glued to your TV. Not having heard this message won't be an excuse, slave. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, slave. <laughs> yeah, I want to I want to try one of these bright vocals but I don't know how to turn it back off afterwards. <laughs> you know the uh, We'll edit it in later. <laughs> yeah. Um you know it reminds me of one of the Simpsons episode uh the one with the house cat flew and I'm going to save most of the clip for later but I've got to I got to play I have to play this first part here. I'd like to call to order this secret conclave of America's media empires. We are here to come up with the next phony baloney crisis to put Americans back where they belong in <laughs> dark rooms glued to their televisions too terrified to skip the commercials. Well, I think... NBC, you are here to listen and not speak. I think we should go with a good old-fashioned public health care. Yeah. A new disease. No one's immune. It's like the summer of the shark, except instead of a shark, it's an epidemic. And instead of summer, it's all the time. <laughs> Yeah, it goes on. I'm going to cut it off there. It goes on and it, it'll be really actually quite relevant when we get into discussing the various theories out there, which probably we'll have to wait till next episode. But uh, mm. so here's the problem, Dan. Unfortunately, when you hit a critical saturation point with this kind of messaging, you start to get citizens repeating this propaganda to each other and then it becomes kind of self-reinforcing, right? Mm -hmm. um, I remember in the early stages of the lockdown, our congregation got a letter from our synod office 
essentially rebroadcasting the same talking points from the mainstream media and the government with a kind of a Christian veneer on it. And it was a little bit, it was a little bit dismaying, you know, that the, the mm. um, they, the letter talks about, um, let me just pull it out here. It, it talks about the, uh, Ten Commandments and, and the First Commandment. The, the, fir, the, the first commandment they want us to focus on is the Fourth Commandment, which deals with um, what we owe, the obedience that we owe our governing authorities. At least that's the way we number them. It's the honor your father and mother, and by extension, uh, honoring our governing authorities whom God has placed over us. And it talks about some of the various decrees of the, the different levels of government. And he says, we are bound to obey those directives. Those directives have been made in the interests of safety and welfare of all people, and then uh, the second point they want to make is the, the fifth commandment tells us, as the small catechism put it, that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. We all thus need to be mindful of the various protocols issued by the Health Public Agency of Canada, reducing contact with others, social distancing, proper hygiene practices, and the like. In addition, with the need for many to self-isolate, the care for the physical welfare of members of and neighbors uh, is even more pronounced and urgent. You know, you know, there's a Christian idea, uh, there's a Christian truth to this, that if you if you won't do it for yourself, do it for your neighbor. But the question is, uh, you know, do we really want to be amplifying this government message? And should churches have capitulated so quickly in shutting things down, uh, kind of over-enthusiastically, even before mm-hmm. we legally had to? Because at one point in Ontario, it was 50 or less that we, for a couple of weeks, it was like that, I think. Um, and and what message is this sending to people about the essentialness of church services and things during the time of crisis? And and does the government really know best? And does the government have our best interest in mind? And we're we're going to come back to these things, but these are the kind of things we're going to examine here on the Not Conform Show. Yeah, it's interesting how the church is uh, capitulated to the government messaging and, in fact, shut down long before they had to. They could have easily went to multiple services. Um, and, in fact, that's what we did just to make sure that we kept it under 50. But other churches had yeah. already closed. We were the weird ones. We were, we were the, yeah. uh, the it, ones that kind of stuck out of the group. Yeah, in your area, in our circuit, we discussed this and we're a bit more remote, so it wasn't as much of a hot zone. So we did the same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the main point that we're developing here is that the government messaging has been carefully crafted to engineer our behavior, and we're falling for it. Our churches are falling for it, Dave. This is the Not Conform Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. All right, so let's continue examining the various tactics of behavior manipulation. And the one we should talk about is the fear tactic. Fear! Yeah, we've already talked about this when we talked about the history of propaganda in our earlier episodes. That's, in fact, how we started the show. And you can go back and review that. But but now, really, then we were talking about it in an academic sense. Now we really have a front seat to the action. Indeed. If, if we're talking about fear tactics, Dave... Uh, I have a brief clip here from French Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron spreading some fear, and it's in French, so I'm going to have to translate for you guys a little bit. We'll just let it play in the background here. The message is clear, the information is transparent, and we will continue to give it. Believe me when I say, I know that what I'm asking of you is unprecedented. But the circumstances demand it. We are at war. 
Certainly in a healthcare war, we are not fighting an army, nor are we fighting another nation. But the enemy is here, invisible, elusive, it progresses. It thus requires a call to arms. We are at war, he says. Nice. So, uh, yeah, he uses this sort of rhetoric to justify and motivate an unprecedented level of peacetime sacrifice from his population. So the whole scenario is framed as a war because a war requires wartime levels of sacrifice and wartime levels of government control. And uh, we, of course, associate war with fear, fear for our lives, fear for other people's lives. So he is essentially using this fear tactic to manipulate us. What a slime ball. Yeah, and you know we've heard similar rhetoric from a number of world leaders, and, and unfortunately, the media is all in on this. I've got this clip from Brian Williams. He's the anchor of MSNBC, and he basically admitting to what they're trying to do. Listen to this. Our job tonight actually is to scare people to death. <laughs> Our job tonight <laughs> is to scare people. <laughs> I mean, how much more blatant can it get? Now, I don't know where that's from. I pulled it from the, the clip show, the show notes from uh, No Agenda Show, episode 1230. And so um, I'm not sure when he said this, but it's obviously from the last couple of months of of covid craziness it's so overt dave like they're just they're just overtly now even saying it we're gonna terrorize you <laughs> and people are like yeah terrorize <laughs> me tell me what to do <laughs> lock me well, in my exactly. home <laughs> you know what dan it's gotten so bad that one of our listeners uh this is peter again sent us a link to a recent rant by bill mahar uh complaining about this very thing and this is from bill mahar's youtube channel real time with bill mahar and and, and i don't have a very high opinion of Bill Maher. I don't even find myself agreeing with him uh, ever, but you know it's bad when Bill Maher finds himself agreeing with me. <laughs> okay? Yeah. So, so listen to this. News sources have to rein it in. Everyone knows Corona is no walk in the park because you literally can't walk in the park. But at some point, the daily drumbeat of depression and terror veers into panic porn. Enough with the life will never be the same headlines. Last month, the Washington Post ran the headline, it feels like a war zone with this picture. This is not a war zone. This is a man with a box of eggs. And I've never seen a war zone with this much bacon. Two weeks ago, Inside Edition said 76,000 in the world had died. So some are making comparisons to the apocalypse. The apocalypse, really? Because most of us are sitting at home smoking delivery weed and binge-watching a show about a gay zookeeper. Okay. <laughs> Unless you're a frontline healthcare worker, this is not the apocalypse. Mm -mm. <laughs> and I know, I know, you expect Inside Edition to be over the top. But the New York Times, they used the same word last week. Braced for apocalyptic surge, New York avoids worst so far. And this was an article about how much better the city was doing than expected. Yeah, so uh, I really like his uh, daily drumbeat of depression and terror veers into panic porn. And that's basically where we're at. You know, there's, there's yeah. war zone comparisons, as you mentioned before, and, and comparisons to the apocalypse is getting quite ridiculous. And later on in the show, he talks about uh, the headlines. And I've clipped this together a little bit, trying to get, a, get out some of his expletives. And it, it gives you, a, I think he summarizes it quite well. So let me play this, this uh, second clip. And this is just under a minute. Another recent Times headline was, it's terrifying, millions more out of work. Granted, it's a quote, 
But who are they quoting? Trump? Fauci? Stephen King? No, they're quoting an event planner in North Hollywood. No offense to the event planners of the world. It's, it's amazing what you people could do with pine cones and silver spray paint. But why are you in my headline? How about this? Just tell me millions are out of work without the flashlight under the chin. <laughs> and I'll decide how I feel about it. That's a good idea. There was never headlines like this before. There was no, it's terrifying, planes hit World Trade Center. There was no, it's sad, Titanic sinks after hitting iceberg. Or... First atomic bomb dropped. Ouch. Yeah, you highlighted the important part, Dan. Just tell me and I'll decide how I feel about it. See, that's the key. They want to be the ones to tell you how you should feel about it. You know, be afraid, slave, be afraid. Indeed, yeah. That's definitely the messaging. For sure. And in Canada, we have this emergency alert system that blares on your cell phone whenever the officials think you're not afraid enough and they want to make you feel afraid. So it, it's actually quite startling. You're, if you're driving, it could easily make you veer into the ditch. It's so loud. Um, and I get this article this morning from one of our listeners um, from the National Post. And here's the headline. So officials can't explain why emergency alert didn't go out as gunmen tore through Nova Scotia. So there's this killing in Nova Scotia this morning, or actually on the weekend, um, mm -hmm. and and there was 18 dead or something like that, but they didn't actually use this system. But, the article goes on to point, but at 11 a.m. on April 10th, Good Friday, they did manage to send out this message. COVID-19 is deadly. Stop the spread now. Stay home. Only leave for essential groceries, prescriptions, or medical appointments. Ignoring public health directives endangers lives. Stay home. Protect yourself and others. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that came out on uh, Good Friday. Uh, very interesting, of course. And we, you know, we'll get back to that when we talk about the, the messaging about churches. But the thing is, fear makes you malleable. And so fear makes you grasp for solutions. And you're much more open to the solutions that are being handed out. And I've got this clip of a, of a very nice analysis of what's going on from an interview of with uh, Minnesota Senator Dr. Scott Jensen. And it's, it's part two of a clip that I'm going to save for a little bit later, but it fits in here very nicely. Listen to this. Fear is a great way to control people. And I worry about that. I worry that sometimes we're so darn interested in just jazzing up the fear factor that, you know, sometimes... People's ability to think for themselves is paralyzed if they're frightened enough. And that's not where I want people to be. I want people to say, we're going to get through this. I'm going to use my head. I'm going to go to different sources. I'm going to listen to different sources. And I'm going to think for myself because that's what America is about. Yeah, and notice the people... People's ability to think for themselves is paralyzed if they're frightened enough. And he's, he's right on about that because that's what makes you uh, grasp for whatever they're wanting to hand out to you at the moment. And it is mm -hmm. a great way to control people. Um, and we'll, get back, we'll come back to his message about uh, listening to different sources. I'm going to think for myself. I think that that is uh, definitely one of the themes we want to highlight in this episode because we're going to give you some alternate sources. And one of those sources is a great interview that you sent me, Dan, uh, mm -hmm. a few weeks back with Dr. John Unites, uh, I think, um, is how you pronounce it, of Stanford University. And and this comes from an hour-long interview by John Kirby on March 23rd, so it's a little old now. Um, but looking at your clips, Dan, I see that you have some stuff for him lined up for this yep. this um, uh, 
episode from that video on the medical side, but I don't think you have this one. And so let me first play uh, an introduction of him where he, the interview asked him, just tell us who you are so that you can get a sense of who he is and that'll benefit the rest of the episode. And then I'm going to play a clip about his, his analysis of what's happening in the press. All right, go for it. I'm uh, John Yanidis. I'm a professor of medicine and of epidemiology and population health uh, at Stanford University. I'm uh, one of the two uh, directors, co-directors of the Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford, or Metrics. My research is interested in appraising evidence, in trying to understand uh, data, strengths of data, and weaknesses of data, and trying to make sure that we have the most useful information to make decisions that matter. Uh, so this guy is no slouch, okay? This guy is no slouch yeah. at all. And I recommend everybody go check out the hour-long interview because even now, a month later, it's still worth listening to. But let me play this next clip, uh, where, what he says about the press, the influence of the press, and the the role that the press has played in um, the fear factor that's being spread about this pandemic, have on top of that a very acute situation, a situation of perceived crisis, a situation of crisis. You have media following every step and every second uh, what is going on with every patient, with every single death. I mean, can you imagine what would have happened if uh, 60 million deaths that happen every year in this planet, we had a meter counting them uh, one by one and, and having stories written for each one of them? It, it, it would be horrible. I mean, we have, uh, we have gone into a complete panic state uh, measuring so far uh, a sizable number of deaths, but nothing, nothing close to the total cumulative mortality that we see both in this country and around this world. I, I think that uh, that panic component and that uh, uh, overemphasis of media attention is probably making things worse. Yeah, single case descriptions can be very powerful because they harness the emotions. When you see an older person who can't breathe because of pneumonia, maybe because of the COVID, but even from a pneumonia, uh, from some other cause, and you hear them wheezing, it's very compelling. It makes you fearful for them, for other people, for yourself. And I think that's why they use this technique. And, and, and then they count the deaths every day. Oh, here's a bigger number. Here's a bigger number. It's very powerful. It's very fear inducing. That's right. The death meter just keeps on climbing up and up and up. And he, just prior to this, he's talking in the interview about the actual statistics. And uh, one of the takeaway points here is, look, if they had followed this, uh, this if they had taken this same approach in last seasons or actually the 2017, 2018 flu season, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, it would have been just as horrifying, just as, just as, uh, uh, as terrifying. And yeah, before we, before we move on, Dan, I want to play one more nine second clip here from, uh, Bill Mahar here, uh, or Maher, Bill Maher. Mar, um, Mar. I think it's just Mar. Mar Bill Mar. I think yeah, it's just Bill Mar. That's it. I, I know Bill somebody Mar, that's. Yeah. Uh, I know somebody that's that has the last name Mahar, and so okay. Bill Mar. <laughs> All right. From Bill Mar. Except now I can't find it on my board. Here it is. We need the news to calm down, and treat us like adults. Trump calls you fake news. Don't make him be right. Yeah, he might be right. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say it, Dan, but it's it's. Uh, I think this is how bad things have gotten. But Dave, I really like your term, deathometer. 
Deathometer. That should be the title of the show. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> the that's COVID it. Yeah. Deathometer. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> this is the Knock and Form Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. <laughs> Yeah, so another aspect of government and media messaging that we should watch out for is overconfident pronouncements that are characterized as facts based on science. And uh, the key critical thinking strategy that one has to employ when faced with such pronouncements is to ask oneself, how would they possibly know what they're claiming as a fact? What data would they have to have to make such an assertion? And is such data even possible to collect? And these are the kinds of questions I ask myself and I teach my students to ask. And let's, let's look at an example, Dave. Right from the start, we heard from the WHO, the World Health, Health Organization, from governments and from the media that COVID-19 was extremely deadly. So this is WHO's director general. We know that COVID-19 spreads fast and we know that it's deadly. 10 times deadlier than the 2009 flu pandemic. Now, you have to ask yourself, how would they know that? To know the fatality rate, you would have to know how many people were infected. But this mm -hmm. is still not fully known, even at this point. And in Canada, it's certainly not known because mm -hmm. not enough people have been tested. So how could they have possibly known that when the statement was made? And that's the kind of thinking that you got to put into play when you're faced with these strong assertions. Now, here's a clip from an interview of Dr. Ioannidis from uh, Stanford University, the one that you've been playing, Dave. And he's mm -hmm. asked about what we really know about the lethality of COVID-19. Uh, the WHO indeed uh, released an estimate of a case fatality rate of 3.4%, uh, which at the time of the release uh, uh, earlier in March, it was based on the number of people who had died as the nominator and the number of people who had documented infections as the denominator. Uh, this is a, a crude estimate, and uh, it largely depends on our ability to capture infections uh, that are in the denominator. The, the number of deaths uh, hopefully is captured with more accuracy, even though even for, for that number, uh, there can be some debate, for example, whether these deaths are by uh, SARS-CoV-2 or with SARS-CoV-2 or also whether some deaths are missed or whether some people who are infected now may die later and we have not captured these deaths yet. But the bigger uncertainty is about the denominator because uh, based on what we know now, many people who are infected with this uh, coronavirus, they present with uh, very little, uh, either no symptoms or mild, moderate symptoms that are very difficult to distinguish from the common cold and common flu. And many of them apparently would not present for asking for uh, health care and for uh, being tested. So what we know is uh, just the tip of the iceberg. And information from settings where we have more complete information about that denominator suggests that the infection fatality rate is much, much lower than 3.4%. It is actually probably much lower compared to the 0.9% that is the main uh, figure that went into some influential calculations by a wonderful team of researchers in Imperial College, uh, which uh, uh, probably overestimated the the exact infection uh, fatality risk. 
those wonderful researchers that may have overestimated <laughs> uh, the fatality rate. But yeah, to have an accurate <laughs> fatality rate, you don't only have to know the number of people that have died, which is the numerator of the fatality rate calculation, but you also have to know the denominator, which is the number of people infected. And we simply don't know what that denominator is in most parts of the world, though there are a few exceptions where they start to collect some data and have some estimate have some estimates. And Ionides brings up Iceland as an example, where they have better estimates of the denominator. Listen to this, Dave. There's a couple more uh, uh, settings where we have fairly unbiased data. One setting that has emerged in the last few days is uh, data from Iceland. Iceland is a small country that really pays a lot of attention to science. They have a wonderful cohort. It's called uh, DECODE, and they have set it up to measure genetic risk factors in the Icelandic population. They have decided to get volunteer samples to be tested, and they do that for a number of days now. Obviously, it's not entirely random, but it comes as close to being random as possible. And uh, until the last data that I saw, they had uh, an infection rate in the population of 0.9%, which you extrapolate to 360,000 people in the Icelandic population. It er turns out to be about uh, 3,500 uh, people being infected. And of those, only one fatality has occurred so far. We have one death, and there's uh, also some people who have uh, some severe symptoms. Uh, one death... Uh, corresponds to 0.03% uh, infection fatality rate. Obviously, if there's more deaths, that will go up. But if you compare that to seasonal influenza, which is 0.10%, uh, it doesn't look that bad. Uh, it could actually be even less compared to seasonal influenza, although I would not be surprised if it's higher, but not really much higher. Yeah. So when you have the right denominator, when you actually take the measurements... COVID seems to be no deadlier than any other flu. Maybe a little bit. Yeah, and this was a month ago now, but yeah. the the numbers still hold up. In fact, the denominator keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger the more people we test, right? So, so That's right. Uh, it just keeps getting the picture in some ways looks better, even though the death-o-meter keeps going up and up and up. That's right. It, it seems that this is a virus that's widely spread through the population. And it, we'll get to this a little bit later because even the mm -hmm. death rates still aren't actually, even the deaths, um, even the, just the total number of deaths still aren't all that unusually high. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, people often bring up Italy as an example. And they say, oh, look how deadly it was in Italy. This is, must be a very deadly virus. Well, here yeah. is Anitis again on uh, Italy. Yeah, I found that part actually of his interview really useful. The last uh, situation where we have uh, an entire city being tested is the city of uh, Vaux in uh, Italy, in uh, a situation where we have the most dramatic events happening so far for the pandemic. That city had uh, an early death of an elderly individual with underlying diseases, and they decided to test everyone in the population. So they tested 3,300 people, every single citizen, and they found an infection rate of about 3%. That was uh, in the third week in, in February. So most likely in other communities in Italy where the 
ability to contain the virus was not very successful, it's very likely that the proportion of people infected continued to increase pretty rapidly. It would not be surprising if in some locations in Lombardy uh, we have currently reached uh, infection rates of uh, 20 or even 30 percent, but this is still a bit speculative. If that's the case, then you need to correct the uh, infection fatality rate or case fatality rate for Italy that seems to be very high by a very large factor. It could be a correction of 100, for example, that needs to be applied. And then the infection fatality rates would drop again close to the range of seasonal influenza. This is shocking, right? Because mm -hmm. even in Italy then, COVID seems to have a fatality rate that is much like the normal flu. And Ina just points out later in the interview that the ICUs in Italy are at capacity every year during the flu season. So the fact that they're overwhelmed doesn't actually mean much, although it, you know, it made it into the media and the media focused on it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not really outside of the range of normal events. Yeah, Dan, recently, uh, Unites wrote an article, which he opens this way, quote, the current coronavirus disease, COVID-19, has been called a once-in-a-century pandemic, but it may also be a once-in-a-century evidence fiasco. Yeah, it's, a, it's an evidence fiasco because the data to support the strong claims being made by the media and the various governments are simply not there. It would require a massive amount of testing that simply couldn't have yet been done at the time of the pronouncements, right? And so again, you got to use that strategy that I mentioned earlier. You got to ask yourself, could they even have the data to support the claims that they're making? And when you think yeah. about it, you realize, no, they probably don't have that data. Yeah, that's a key, that's a key point. Now, then there is uh, epidemiologist Newt Witkowski, who was the head of the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology and Research Design at the Rockefeller University. And here is his view on the lethality and nature of COVID-19. There are no indications that this flu is fundamentally different from every other flu. We know what happened in China. We know, we know what happened in South Korea. We know what happened or is happening in Europe. There are no indications that anything is different from a regular flu. Maybe one that's a bit, more, bit worse than other flus. Could be. Yeah, that's just a bit worse than other flus, maybe. Here's, here's another clip from uh, Witkowski. During a press briefing yesterday, uh, Fauci and, and the president and, and the rest of the people assembled were saying that had they not done the containment strategy that they have done, that uh, upwards of 2 million people would have died in the United States. What do you think of that figure? Well, I'm not paid by the government. So I, I'm entitled to actually do science. Uh, if the government hadn't, if there had been no intervention, the epidemic would have been over. Like every other respiratory disease epidemic. And how many, in your estimation, would have died? Would it have been that much? Okay, we have right now, let's take realistic numbers in the United States. We have about 25,000 cases every day. Our hospital system would have to deal with 2,500 patients every day for a certain period of time. That could be about three or four weeks, and then the number will dramatically decrease again, and the whole epidemic will be over. 
And, and of those hospitalized cases, what, in your estimation, how many would die? Two percent will die. Of the hospitalized cases? Of all cases. Of all, all, of ca all symptomatic cases? Of all symptomatic cases. Two percent of all symptomatic cases will die. That is two percent of the 25,000 a day. So that is 500 people a day. And that will happen over four weeks. So that could be as high as 10,000 people. Now that compares to the normal numbers of flus during the flu season. And we have in the United States about 35,000 deaths due to flu every year during the flu season. So it would be part of the normal situation during the flu season. Yeah, that's a long clip, Dan, but uh, I really like the, I'm not paid by the government, so I'm entitled to do science. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so he says, he says in some years in the U.S., about 35,000 people die of the flu. And uh, I don't think many people know that. So when they when they hear like 10,000 people dying, everybody's freaked out. But it's like, it's still within the normal range. Uh, it really puts things into perspective. And I think the American numbers are interesting. You can go on the CDC site and look at the flu-related deaths for each year, broken down by age. And what you see is the general pattern that older people are much more likely to die from the flu than younger people. Actually, it's, it's massively skewed. Mm -hmm. So... The current trends of older people dying of COVID is not new at all. Uh, but mm -hmm. more importantly, the number of flu-related deaths are shockingly high. And uh, mm -hmm. we heard uh, Witkowski mention the number 35,000, which is true for some years, but the mm -hmm. fatality rate can be much higher. For example, in the 2017-2018 season at the table that I'm looking at, there uh, were in the U.S. 61,000 flu-related deaths, right? 61,000. So right now in the U.S., there are just over 40,000 COVID deaths. I think last night I saw 42,000. Okay, 42,000. Uh, but that's not way out of the range of normal. And that's with everything being called a COVID death these days. Yeah, that's right. I, I found this interesting article. It was in the LA Times. I think it was, uh, the, the title is the 2017-2018 flu season uh, killed 80,000 Americans, but no hysteria or shutdown. Okay, so <laughs> I went mm -hmm. and I went back and it links a bunch of these articles from back then. And here, I'll give you a couple of them. So this is one from uh, Los Angeles Times. And it, these really illustrate how short a memory we have about this kind of stuff and how easily we get bamboozled by whatever's actually just presently being broadcast by the press. Because we should remember these, right? We should. It's, mm -hmm. it's 2017, 2018 is not that long ago. And so here's mm -hmm. Los Angeles Times from that time period. Okay. Quote, California hospitals face a war zone of flu patients and are setting up tents to treat them. Wait a minute, Dave. This is from 2017, 2018. This is not yeah. just from like a month ago. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, it, the, the, the articles read like you could just put COVID-19 in there and it would read like the stuff we're hearing today with much more greater panic. But listen to this. So this is how the article opens up. The huge numbers of sick people are also straining hospital staff who are confronting what could become California's worst flu season in a decade. Hospitals across the state are sending away ambulances, flying in nurses from 
out of state, not letting children visit their loved ones for fear they'll spread the flu. Others are canceling surgeries, erecting tents in their parking lots so that they can triage the hordes of flu patients. <laughs> this is the, this is the, yep. how the article reads from then, right? Here's another one from CNN, okay? The headline, flu season deaths top 80,000 last year, says CDC. Mm-hmm. Wow. And here's a, here's a quote from the article. An estimated 80,000 Americans die of flu. Uh, sorry, an estimated 80,000 Americans died of flu and its complications last winter, according to the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention. This means it was the deadliest season in more than four decades. Since 1976, the date of the first published paper reporting total flu deaths, said CDC spokeswoman Kristen Norland. In previous seasons, flu-related deaths have ranged from a low of about 12,000 during the 2011-2012 season to a high of about 56,000 during the 2012-2013 season. Mm-hmm. All right, so that gives you that gives you historical data before you know they started sort of ignoring these things. Um, one more here. This is from Time, and the headline is: Hospitals overwhelmed by flu patients are treating them in tents. Quote, the 2017-2018 influenza pandemic is sending people to hospitals and urgent care centers in every state. And medical centers are responding with extraordinary measures, asking staff to work overtime, setting up triage tents, restricting friends and family visits and canceling elective surgeries, to name a few. Quote, we are pretty much at capacity and the volume is certainly different from previous flu seasons, said Dr. Alfred uh, Talia, professor and chair of family medicine at the Robert Wood Johnson Medical Center in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I've been practicing for 30 years and it's been a good 15 or 20 years since I've seen a flu-related illness scenario like the one we had this year. So um, clearly, <laughs> this is the tents are certainly not anything new. Um, yeah, And the numbers at this point certainly are not anything new either. At least that's, that's the right. way the numbers present themselves. Yeah, indeed. You know, the main point that we're making here, just to remind everybody, is that the government claims that uh, COVID-19 is some sort of an extraordinarily deadly flu are likely wrong. Uh, But it was touted as fact, right? Huge death rate. We know this. The WHO, the main guy, sits there and he makes these pronouncements as if it was known fact. And now we're seeing, well, maybe... We, we actually didn't really know, and this is not out of the range of normal, and it's probably very similar to 2017, 2018. And because now, again, like, as I said, in the U.S., we have about 42,000 COVID deaths. And uh, as I said before, that's probably, uh, you know, including all sorts of different kinds of things being counted as a COVID death right now. Yeah, and on that point, Dan, I have a great clip from uh, Minnesota Senator Dr. Scott Jensen. I played the second half of it earlier, but now I want to back up. And he, in this first part of the clip, he talks about how the medical authorities, okay, are basically, they sent a letter out, a, a multi-page letter, telling doctors to count, essentially to count every mortality they possibly can as COVID. You know, if it, if it, if it even remotely qualifies, label it as COVID. So here's a clip from Dr. Scott Jensen uh, uh, Minnesota Senator. You just said, I think is critically important. Can you repeat what you just said, please? Well, last Friday, I received a seven-page document that sort of told me that if I had an 86-year-old patient that had pneumonia but was never tested for COVID-19, but sometime after she came down with pneumonia, we learned that she had been exposed to her son who had no symptoms 
but later on was identified with COVID-19, that it would be appropriate to diagnose on the death certificate COVID-19. Now, we've not done that. If someone has the pneumonia after, and, and it's in the middle of a flu epidemic, and I don't have a test on influenza, I don't diagnose influenza on the death certificate. I will say uh, this elderly patient Sir, died of pneumonia. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I, my heart is sinking right now as you're telling me this. You're, you're a doctor. Why in the world would they be sending you out information to fill out death certificates, whether the person's been diagnosed with COVID-19 or not, but then to say in the death certificate this person's death was caused by COVID-19? That, that does not sound right to me. I went to the person in our office who does most of the death certificates over the last you know, 10, 20 years, and I said, does this sound right? I had her look at the documents that I printed off, and she said, well, we've always been told that you always put down just facts. You don't put down any probabilities. You don't put any presumptions down. It's just what you know. And so this is concerning, and, and it actually gets to your point, Chris. When we start talking about the data that goes into the modeling, we have to ask ourselves a question. Are we being forthright? Are we sharing with the public? Minnesota, North Dakota, we don't need to be having it sugar-coated. We want to know but, what's going into your modeling. So with that being said, why would they want to skew the number of deaths due to COVID-19? Well, fear is a great way to control people. And I worry about that. I worry that sometimes we're yeah, there's so a fear. interested in just jazzing up the fear factor yeah and you've heard the rest of it uh that was uh, that the first clip i played starts there and continues on and i remember listening to the united's talk and he talks about that same kind of counting being a big part of the death toll in the italy situation mm -hmm. and dan well i was listening to uh the no agenda podcast and they've had several listeners writing in and this is anecdotal but they've had several listeners writing in one from italy and one from the even the american scene where it was the story was something like, oh, they showed my dad's picture on TV saying he died from COVID. No, he didn't. He died from, you know, whatever, such and such. Right. So mm -hmm. th that's anecdotal. But but they're definitely the counting is a little bit suspect. Yeah, it's like you get into a car crash, you die, and then you're tested for COVID, and you had COVID, you're you're chalked up as a COVID death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. and, and we, we don't have time to get into it because there's a big funding uh, scandal going on there, possibly, right? Because if, as soon as you label it as COVID, the, your ability to bill yeah. uh, insurance and the government just goes up. So Cash starts to flow. Um, yeah. Dave, along these lines, CNN ran an article titled, U.S. Coronavirus Death Tolls compiled by cdc will now include probable causes so <laughs> there you have it <laughs> yeah so they are inflating the numerator of the fatality rate calculation while at the same time reducing the denominator because they're not testing enough people so obviously yeah. they're doing this because they have to make it look like this massive intervention is worthwhile <laughs> but uh yeah it's just true. to close it's true yeah just to close off the segment dave Let's just reiterate that the main problem is that the data needed to make the strong claims that politicians and the media are making simply don't exist. We still don't know how many people have been infected. And here is a clip from Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford University. The key thing to, to, to know about the virus and how much we know about it is, is that uh, we actually don't know how many people have been infected. It's a very strange thing to say, given how much data is floating around. But it's it, and, and it sounds like it's a remarkable thing, but it's actually just a, a plain scientific fact. 
Yeah, so he goes on to talk about the problem with the testing, and in fact that there hasn't been done very much random testing of the population. And uh, this was an earlier clip, but just a few days ago, I saw a preprint on MedRxiv. Uh, so this is like a preprint publication from the Stanford group, mm -hmm. which includes Initis and Jay Bhattacharya as the senior authors. And the paper was titled COVID-19 Antibody Seroprevalence in Santa Clara County, California. Okay, so they collected blood and tested for antibodies to COVID-19 in a sample of the population and found the infection prevalence estimates to be, quote, 50 to 85-fold more than the number of confirmed cases. So this means that oh, the denominator in the case fatality rate is much higher than has been advertised, and so the actual fatality rate is much lower, probably similar to that of other flus. Oh, that would be good news. Yeah. So we went through all of this to make the point that the media and the government will make strong claims that sound like scientific facts, but they're not. And you have to ask yourself, how would they even know that supposed fact? Could evidence for the assertion even exist? And more often than not, when I apply this critical principle, I realize that a proper study to support the claim in question would be very difficult to do. And so that the evidence for that claim is likely weak, thin, or even non-existent. Yeah, they're telling us the death rate of COVID before they even know how to properly test for it. This is so bizarre. Everybody just eats it up. I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah, Dan, maybe the reason that people don't, um, you know, just accept and they don't ask that question, how would they know that, um, is because they don't feel confident that they can understand the science. Yeah. Uh, or actually, actually, it's maybe this. Maybe it's because of the scientific babble that's out there, you know, the scientish <laughs> uh, that we've played in other episodes. Uh, yeah. People just assume that the scientists can always just whip up a gadget or a test to get the answers they want. You know, oh, just, just spit into this tube here and we'll put it through the quantum spectral uh, dark matter analyzer and presto, you know, we'll, we'll know if you have COVID. But yeah, in real yeah. life, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> that's not how it works. Uh, and um, and that's precisely why it's important to seek out experts that are not being forwarded and, and advanced by the mainstream. People like Unites and Bhattacharya and Witkowski. Uh, we'll have this, all this stuff in the show notes. And this is why it's so important that there are other non-mainstream news sources that alternate that have alternative views that aren't silenced through the deplatforming and the potential government persecution that's coming um well so certainly here in canada where the liberal government wants to put in legislation to be able to censor and silence anyone that's spreading covid misinformation and so get the not conform show here before you uh download it before it becomes <laughs> censored and, and yeah unavailable yeah, because who <laughs> defines misinformation, right? Who defines misinformation? Yeah. They do. Exactly. Um, and so if you fall out of the, the common narrative, then you are spreading fake news. Yeah, th that's the problem. Actually, talking about um, overstatements and not knowing the science facts, there was an article that uh, I have to draw in here. It came up yesterday, or last night I saw it on the Drudge Report, and so I clicked on it. This is from the New York New York Post, okay? Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the uh, talk about fear spreading. Can the coronavirus be th spread through farts? <laughs> oh, man, yeah, it'll just disperse so, throughout so, the entire... Well... The, the, the entire so, room... <laughs> 
Well, exactly. So two Australian doctors are weighing about the spread of coronavirus down under, whether it can be spread through farts, that is. (laughs) And the the article, they spend this whole part about the, you know, no bare bottom farting, they advise because of this, because it can, I mean, the the fecal matter, of course, is very contagious on this stuff. That's one thing we do know. So they spend all this time speculating about this and the article's making jokes. It's clickbait, but (laughs) listen to this. Okay. Uh, However, this is, they always bury this. You got to go to always read to the bottom or at least skip the middle and read the bottom because then they get into the real meat. Okay. (laughs) However, there are no published data on whether flatulence alone presents any risk of transmission. Although in a clothed person, it would be unlikely to be a significant route of transmission. He said, right. (laughs) So in the end, (laughs) there's no data. Yeah, there's no data. We just, we just spent two doctors uh, were interviewed and spent all this time uh, giving you directives about, about flatulence, right. And, and making actual pronouncements about this. And then in the end, oh, by the way, there's no data. We don't really know, but we just, this is just speculation. Uh, This is how a lot of articles work. Um, They, they don't make that, they don't, they don't put the caveat in the disclaimer and until the bottom where you really realize, oh, it's just a bunch of bull crap. Yeah. So COVID flatulence, you heard about it on the Not Conform Show. <laughs> this is the Not Conform Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. All right, Dan. So moving on from overstatements, um, let's talk about the memes that the media keeps repeating as if to drum them into our minds. Uh, things like flatten the curve or Ooh. asymptomatic transfer, all these things that just keep, we keep, you know, being pounded and pounded with. Yeah. One messaging strategy used by governments and media outlets is to create and promote a meme, which uh, is basically a, a very simple idea, which people then uncritically accept and then willingly perpetuate. And so here's an example. And you already, you already mentioned it, Dave. I think if you ask most people why they're being shut in their homes, they will mindlessly parrot the phrase, we have to flatten the curve. It's like a bunch of zombies. We have to flatten the curve. We're doing our job in flattening the curve. We're doing the best we can to flatten the curve. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So let's think about this. The flattening the curve meme went viral after a graphic based on a CDC article was circulated. And then the term was used by Dr. Anthony Fauci. And I believe that ultimately the figure and the term ended up in an article that was run in the New York Times. And I remember people sending me like these clips from this Mm. article from the New York Times, flatten the curve. And basically the graphic shows time on the x-axis and the number of infections on or infected people uh, or incidents on the y-axis. And it shows a narrow, tall, bell-shaped curve. So that's the non-intervention scenario of the spread of the virus over time. And then there is this wider curve that is not as tall. So it's flatter. And so that's the flattened curve. And it's meant to indicate... Same area though, right? That's right. It's meant to indicate how the incidents are thought to unfold if we go into a lockdown, right? And if we do the social distancing and so on. And so from there came the Mm -hmm. idea of you know, that we have to flatten the curve. But why would you want to flatten the curve? So as you mentioned, Dave, and and as far as I can tell, flattening the curve doesn't reduce the number of incidents, right? It just spreads Mm -hmm. the number of incidents over a longer period of time. And if you read the New York Times article, the main idea is that if you spread out the incidents over time, you won't overwhelm the healthcare system. So it's all about 
the capacity of the healthcare system. And I bet a lot of people don't actually mm. know that. They don't know that flattening the curve is just going to spread things out over time. I think a lot of people believe that flattening the curve means reducing the number of incidents, but that's actually not the case as far as I can tell. Right, Dave? Are you agree with me on this? That's right. Yeah. You could make the argument that it could potentially reduce the number of deaths if uh, there are deaths that are due to an overwhelmed system. That's right. But yes. There but there isn't that much evidence of that going on right now, is there? Exactly. There is really not much evidence that the healthcare system in Canada and even in the U.S., for that matter, in many parts of Europe, would be overwhelmed. There's just no evidence for that. I have an article here mm -hmm. published in the National Post on April 11th, and it had the following about the Canadian situation. Quote, they have been bracing for the worst, a deluge of desperately sick patients who strain resources to the limit and lead to desperate choices over how to ration care. Doctors, nurses, and other staff who run the nation's intensive care units have feared for their own safety, too, amid shortages of protective equipment. But perhaps surprisingly, some critical care physicians in the hardest-hit provinces say they have yet to face that feared surge of coronavirus sufferers. So far, at least, there is no flood and plenty of available ICU beds, end quote. So there's really, mm -hmm. you know, not this shortage and this overwhelming of the system that uh, was advertised early on. And there's actually a hashtag on Twitter called hashtag film your hospital. And people are filming the hospitals and COVID testing centers in major cities in the U.S., and what's interesting is that, you know, at least the outsides of them, because they can't really like go right into any particular room, but sometimes they, they film the lobbies and they're nearly empty. There's certainly no major mm -hmm. activity and they're not over overloaded and people lining up outside the door. Like you just don't see that. Yeah. And this is recent stuff, right, Dan? This was the the National Post was April 11th, did you say? That's right. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's not it's not that old, at yep. least not from where we're recording here. That's right. Yeah. And I think I have a clip maybe later on. Uh, the Ontario government just had a press conference uh, on Monday. So that was just yesterday at the time of this recording. And they're saying basically that, yeah, there's no real strain on the ICU beds. In fact, we're doing better mm -hmm. than the best case scenario. <laughs> is that, that's what you're going to hear in a, in a moment. But, uh, but that's not what the media is telling you, right? They're telling you mostly that it's like horrible. And here's an interesting example. The New York Times ran a story in which Dr. Colleen Smith videos the inside of the Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. And the story includes shots of people lining up outside the hospital and uh, all sorts of busyness and people dying. And here's a clip I cut out and I, I ended up actually clipping out some of the musical parts just to make it shorter. But listen mm -hmm. to this. All okay. the patients in this room... All the feet that you see, they all have COVID. The frustrating thing about all of this is it really just feels like it's too little too late. Like we knew, we knew it was coming. Today is kind of getting worse and worse. We had to get a refrigerated truck to store the bodies of patients who are dying. Yeah, so that story was circulated widely, and it sounds horrible, and I think that hospital was actually called the Coronavirus Ground Zero, 
by an ABC News article. And so the idea out there is like, oh, everything is overwhelmed. Everything is strained. But again, there are these citizen reporters out there and you can follow them who go to these places and they talk to some of the nurses and the doctors and uh, the people outside and around. And it just seems like it's kind of dead. The ambulances are sitting around. Mm -hmm. There isn't any panic. You know, there's something really weird going on here because there's a disconnect between what the media is telling us and what other people are actually experiencing. Mm -hmm. And, oh, wait, I'm just looking at my notes here. And uh, it turns out that in the news video, Colleen Smith claimed that there was a shortage of ventilators at the Elmhurst Hospital. Uh, but evidently, the hospital itself denied that there was a shortage of ventilators. So that's bizarre. And it turns out that this Colleen Smith is an expert in medical simulation. How totally bizarre. Yeah. And and don't forget, these are the same people, although I can't remember the network, but they were showing, they were reporting on the crisis situation. Uh, I hope you heard the air quotes in New York. And they were showing a footage of, a, of an Italian hospital. That's right. So uh, they retract that. I don't have that on, on the top of my hand here to to uh, pull out which article that was. But uh, you almost got to wonder if some of these uh, this uh, footage here isn't from the 2017, 2018 flu epidemic. Well, you just don't know these days because they just like pull some footage. You know, the, yeah, pull some stock footage of a hospital being crowded and, and you don't know, right? That's right. Uh, now that's, I mean, I have no evidence of that. I, I'll fully be upfront with that. I have no evidence of that. There's no supporting data, but it's just me speculating conspiratorially but it's based on history it's based on their performance in the past in this situation yeah my neighbor uh is an icu nurse and uh mm -hmm. she said that our local hospital um is not very busy they set up ex an extra icu unit uh, but right now there seems to be no need for it and what she said was the biggest pain in the butt is that they have to go through this whole procedure of dressing and all this stuff you know protective gear and so on yeah. so that's the pain in the butt but like in terms of you know, there being some sort of a demand load, it just doesn't appear to be there. There are tumbleweeds blowing through our hospitals and we'll be told that there is some overwhelming pandemic going on. I mean, <laughs> that yeah, there I mean, are massive yeah. surges of sick people and they can't get health care and so on. I mean, what this reflects actually is more of the wild predictions of the computer models uh, than actual reality. Yeah. Have you seen the visuals of the nurses, the, the videos of the nurses doing their little TikTok dances because they got nothing better to do in a whole bunch of hospitals? Yeah. Is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's nutty, right? We'll have to find a few of those for the for the show notes. But, uh, you know, there, there's even reports that some small hospitals uh, in the U.S. are going to have to close because the, since the elective surgeries have been closed, they're, they're, they've got no patients and they got no money. So... Yeah. You know, talk about unintended consequences, right? And and in the uh, the United's video, he talks about that interview. He talks about the fact that even in Italy, even in Italy, where it was like a disaster upon disaster, uh, it was just a few pockets that were overwhelmed. And the overall, there's hospitals that were in the same situation that were doing just fine. Yeah, that's right. Right. And, and it was more of a reflection on their healthcare system and their they're, they're, they, they're having a large population of very sick old people with lung problems and the bad pollution and the excessive smoking that really led up to this rather than actual, um, you know, the, the, the COVID-19 virus per se. Yeah. So we had this meme 
right? That went out there that the government's pushed, that the media pushed, the prominent media publications like the New York Times, you got to flatten the curve. And that got into everybody's head. And uh, maybe the best justification was, you know, to prevent the overwhelming of the healthcare system, but it's just not panning out that way. Uh, and meanwhile, the consequences of the shutdown that was justified by this flattening the curve meme might be massive. And let's turn to that next. But first, let's a little, do a little section mm-hmm. break. This is the Knock and Form Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. Yeah, so this brings us to the next key messaging technique we should watch out for, which is a biased cost-benefit analysis. The media and the governments will give you a biased cost-benefit analysis of the situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, What the governments and the mainstream media are not considering, at least in any serious detail, are the costs of the intervention. They're all about, like, what are the potential costs of this pandemic, you know, grows, but they're not talking about the cost of the intervention. And uh, some people might say, well, you know, that's that's fine because you can't compare human lives to the economy, right? Because people think about the costs of the intervention in economic terms. But yeah, it, it's not a comparison of human lives to the economy. Uh, it's a comparison of human lives to human lives, because whenever you see a downturn in the economy, that translates into uh, detriments in human health. Human health deteriorates with poverty uh, and and with an economic downturn. So it's human lives versus human lives. That's the way to think about it. But the mainstream is completely ignoring it. Yeah, they were trying to smear Trump with this, uh, that he was comparing, he's prioritizing the economy over human lives. But that's a complete non sequitur. You're not even comparing the right things together. That's right. You know, very early on, there was an article that came out in the National Post uh, by Dr. Neil Rao and Dr. Susan uh, Richardson. And uh, here are their, their bios, but, and I'll get to their views in a second, which, which are very interesting. But here are their bios right from the article here from the National Post. Quote, Dr. Neil Rao is an infectious disease specialist and medical microbiologist in private practice in Oakville, Ontario. He's also an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Susan Richardson is a retired infectious disease specialist and medical microbiologist. She headed the Ontario Laboratory Working Group for the rapid diagnosis of emerging infections during the 2003 SARS outbreak. She's a professor emerita at the University of Toronto. Okay, so these people are not, you know, just some... Slouches. Slouches, exactly. They're very well credentialed. So here's what they say, and I'm just taking a few quotes again, a string of quotes from the article. Quote, the WHO containment ideal requires a huge societal sacrifice from those at low risk to prevent its spreading to those at high risk. Quote, we should instead be targeting significant resources towards the protection of those at high risk, the elderly, those with underlying chronic diseases, and those with immune compromising conditions, and maintaining a healthy, robust, responsive healthcare system that can handle a potential surge. The economic and social costs of pursuing quarantine are staggering and actually counterproductive. And they go on, quote, having failed to stop the virus completely, the WHO has revised the containment strategy to a novel one to, quote, flatten the outbreak curve, end quote. 
This new strategy is being used to invoke severe restrictions to movement and liberty at an early phase of the pandemic in North America. Although the effectiveness of the approach is unproven, even China's valiant <laughs> efforts, yeah, even China's valiant efforts with unprecedented mass quarantine were only partly successful and required a huge sacrifice of individual liberties, end quote. So the flatten the curve approach is new or for, for this pandemic. It's unproven. And they said very early on, it will have massive economic and social costs. And that's been ignored by the lion's share of the mainstream media and the governmental messaging. Yeah. So you have this global social experiment. Let's see what happens. Yeah. We're a bunch of lab rats, Dave. We're a bunch of COVID lab rats. Hey, that's a title, show title, <laughs> COVID lab rats. <laughs> we got all these show titles now. We got to pick one. Yeah, Dan, we don't have a shortage of uh, show titles and we certainly don't have a shortage of material for this episode. We're, we're quite a ways in, but let's keep going for a little bit. And um, uh, we've got uh, a little bit more material to cover. Yeah. And so we're talking about these, uh, the biased cost uh, benefit assessments that are being put out by the government and the media. And, uh, you know, there's other people that have made the case that the cost, and we're, we're specifically talking about costs in terms of mental health, the economy, poverty, and so on, for flattening the curve of a flu that we don't even know is much worse than the regular flu. This cost is massive. So, for example, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, a GP in England and the author of a book titled Doctoring Data, How to Sort Out Medical Advice from Medical Nonsense, wrote the following in an opinion piece published in April 6, 2020. Quote, We are paying too high a price to try to combat COVID-19, not just in terms of the uh, $350 billion, and I think he's in pounds, uh, which would be about $430 billion in U.S. bill, but also in the health costs our actions are causing. If funds are not limitless, he goes on to say, which they aren't and can't be, then we must focus on funding things that do the greatest good. That is why the National Institute for Healthcare and Excellence, NICE, was established. NICE reviews interventions and decides if they provide value for money. NICE attempts to compare healthcare interventions against each other by using a form of quote-unquote currency called the cost per quality. Q-A-L-Y. A quality is a quality-adjusted life year. One added year of completely healthy life is one quality. So there is actually, uh, there are mathematical computations for this already available. And to make a long story short, or I guess to make a long computation short in this case, um, his computation suggests that COVID health interventions will cost at least 10 times the NICE's acceptable level for interventions, given all the other conditions that need to be treated that are out there. So, so we're putting way too many resources into fighting COVID at the expense of other life-threatening conditions. And you already mentioned, Dave, how they're closing down some hospitals because they've canceled all sorts of surgeries and so on, right? So any kind of right now, any kind of preventative medicine yeah. is not taking place. And that's going to have a cost. And you can actually mathematically look at this. And people that have looked at this uh, are saying this COVID intervention is simply not worth it. It might be worse uh, than just doing nothing. 
Yeah, and I agree. And more and more specialists in the field of epidemiology are making that same point. In fact, uh, it's another. I have another clip here from John Unitas that he where he makes the same point. If we shut everyone in their house, uh, it is a solution. You know, if if we manage to even isolate everyone, not even uh, being in touch with any other person, in theory we are containing uh, the spread of the virus. So as you realize, this is very difficult to do. It has lots of consequences. And for a society like ours, it means that uh, very soon you will start seeing a major impact on the economy. Uh, We already see that. If the economy is ruined, you have unemployment, you have poverty, you have bankruptcies, you have uh, uh, lots of diseases that are associated with this sort of social and economic disruption. We have strong evidence that that can lead to an increase in depression, in anxiety, in suicides, uh, in heart attacks, uh, in common things, in in things that cumulatively could have a much higher impact on deaths compared to what uh, SARS-CoV-2 can achieve on, on its own. So there are some models that suggest that if you go down that path, of uh, basically lockdown, you may need to wait for 18 months. And I'm, I'm extremely worried about that scenario. I'm, I'm not sure that our world, our civilization uh, could survive that. I think that there is not just millions of lives at stake, which is the pessimistic scenarios about uh, SARS-CoV-2. It is billions of lives uh, who might be at stake if we have to protract uh, that for so long. That's right. And I want to remind our listeners once again that we are not, these guys that we're playing the clips from are not your internet conspiracy theorists. These guys are experts on the top of their fields uh, yeah. with, who are widely recognized as knowing what they're talking about. And uh, there are other experts out there than Dr. Fauci, who seems to have his own dog in the hunt. And just a couple of days ago, I found an article in Market Watch. That's showing the healthcare costs, the health costs of the shutdown are already growing rapidly. Okay, Mm -hmm. here's the headline. Anti-anxiety medication prescriptions have spiked 34% during the coronavirus pandemic. And now others are starting to cite that same study. I saw another article last night on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And here's a CNBC article about long-term mental health problems caused by the pandemic. And this is what they write. Even if you aren't directly affected by COVID-19, The pandemic has been a significant stressor on everyone's lives. Alyssa Reinhold, clinical psychologist and professor of the Medical University of South South Carolina, who specializes in trauma, tells NBC's Make It. Okay, so this is already starting. It's we're already seeing it. And at this point, there really is no stopping the carnage that's going to come out of the decision that has been made to go this route. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess the key point here we want to come back to is that we have to keep an eye out for these one-sided or biased cost estimates. Whenever people tell you, oh, there's a huge cost, you got to think about, well, okay, what, what are the other costs for the various other proposals, right? And in this case, the governments and the media are not considering the massive costs of the shutdown. It could be that mm-hmm. the cure is far more deadly than the disease. This is the Knock and Form Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. 
So another key tactic that we've seen being implemented by governments and by the media is the use of computational models that are designed to make predictions about possible outcomes. Whenever you see someone in government or media trot out a predictive model, your crab detector should go off. Okay. <laughs> Why? Well, the reason is that predictive models are heavily based on assumptions and are not completely data driven. They have parameters that simply reflect the assumptions that modelers have, and the parameters can be tweaked to obtain almost any result. So, for example, mm -hmm. how do the models know how much social distancing will lead to a certain amount of reduction in disease spread? Well, early in an epidemic, they have no idea because the data is not available. So they make some estimates that seem reasonable to them, and then those estimates drive the predictions of the model. And the key point is that such mm -hmm. models are based on these guesses or estimates or assumptions and not not just concrete data. They're not fully data driven. And, uh, you know, because you could tweak the model's assumptions to fit kind of whatever you want, the models can become a powerful rhetorical device. Mm -hmm. And so, for example... Why is it that people are so worried about such a high fatality rate? Well, one reason is that they've been presented with computer models that have made very dire predictions. And the governments have used those dire predictions to manipulate the behavior of their populations. So in Canada, the Public Health Agency of Canada released a technical briefing for Canadians. And I'm thinking of what they did this a number of times, but one in April 9th, 2020. And it was called COVID-19 in Canada using data and modeling to inform public health action. And at the time, there were only 401 deaths in all of Canada that were attributed to COVID-19, okay? But the predictions that were mm -hmm. made were very dire, okay? They showed that if stronger epidemic controls were put in, into place, which is essentially full lockdown, uh, then the model said that we should expect about 11,000 deaths, but if no controls were put into place, the model said that deaths would be a whopping 350,000, okay? 350,000 deaths. So, of course, these models are meant to convince the population that they have to go into lockdown or else the death toll will be incredibly high. So, they're, they're used as a behavioral change device. Yeah, and this sort of messaging is meant to generate that compliance through fear by placing into people's minds that worst-case scenario, right? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, here's a clip from a press conference in which the government of Ontario gave a COVID-19 update, and you'll hear Dr. Brown, who is the dean of the Dalla Lana School of Health at the University of Toronto. Listen to this. What do you say to the people that, uh, who may be s cynical about these numbers and the original ones were so um, inflated that they, 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 they are leery about these numbers? So these models have a feedback in them. Uh, I think that's sort of the easiest way to put it. Uh, when we release a model, when there's numbers that are in those models that look uh, quite uh, frightening, people frightening. do change behavior. And ah. if you look out on the city streets, if you look at what's happening, uh, behavior has changed and that reduces the infection. They feed back on each other. Yeah, the, the truth has to come out, Dave. So the dire models, <laughs> they inspire fear and uh, that leads to behavioral change. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. 
<laughs> yeah. Why else would you drag these models out into the public limelight, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and Dan, Dan, I got to give you the uh, the awesome clip jingle for this one. I think that's Woo! that's a great great find there. Now, if you listen carefully, Brown makes another key point in that clip. He implies that the behavior change caused by the fear, which was caused by the dire predictions of the models, has the effect of reducing the number of incidents. So the argument is, see, based on our model data, the lockdown, the social distancing, the isolation, it's all working. It must be, right? <laughs> In fact, that message was throughout the government of Ontario's press conference through all the different speakers. Uh, they start by saying that the real numbers are in line with the model's best case scenario. So, in fact, we're doing really well. There's nothing to be freaked out about. And then yeah. this guy on the panel, Matthew Anderson, the president and CEO of Ontario Health, uh, he has a following to, to say about ICUs. Listen to this. Um, and what you can see in the chart is that uh, what we've been able to do, um, and when I say we, I mean all of us, uh, everybody listening, everybody who has uh, participated in the public health initiatives, you've made a difference. We are now at a place where our pink bar, the, the ICUs, the actual use, is trending better than our best case scenario. So it's better than the best case scenario, Dave, and it's all because yeah. of the lockdown. It's because of your good behavior. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. Good job, citizen. Yeah. You have complied acceptably. Exactly. <laughs> now, here's the important point. How would we ever know that the shutdown has made any impact? Because there is no control condition. So regardless of the outcome, we won't know if the shutdown had any impact at all or what impact it might have had on the spread of the virus and on the death rate. We won't know because there is no control condition, which is the most basic principle of scientific design. And so they're claiming the shutdown is having an effect, but we have actually no possible way of assessing that. Yeah, and this is one of those um, analyses that you'd only find on the Not Conform show because we have... The, the, the expertise here to make that, uh, to bring that to light, right? Everybody's going to say, oh, it was because of the, uh, because of, we followed the shutdown model. That's why, you know, we got these re reductions in the deaths, but, but uh, really we can't, you can never make that claim. In fact, I can't remember who made this point and I'm going to try to see if I can repeat it coherently. But uh, the point is we're never going to have a control condition because no world leader is going to sign up for their country being randomly assigned to the control group or uh, the experimental group in a scenario like this. Right. right. But what we can hope for maybe is an A-B comparison or maybe an A-B and C comparison by the end of this, because there are countries like Sweden who are taking a different approach. And, and if by the end of their uh, by the end of all this, their total, let's just say total all-causes mortalities, their, their all-causes death spike is not any worse than everyone else's, then you can maybe call into question the necessity of the lockdown approach. But it, it'll never be uh, kind of scientific uh, control condition. But Dan, look, call me conspiratorial, but I find it very interesting that 
those who are of that globalist mindset, the globalist types are really irate with countries like Sweden who are adopting a, a local approach. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if they wanted to do, if they wanted, they wanted everyone to do the same thing. So you can't have this AB comparison on the other side, you know, when we get through this. Yeah. yeah, because it becomes a lot easier for them to claim that, hey, wrecking the economy was totally worth it because it drastically reduced that deathometer. Yeah. And if there's no control condition, then, yeah, they can claim it and we can't really challenge them. Right. And the government are yeah. taking credit for the intervention. As we heard in that clip, they're saying that the interventions are working. Uh, but, yeah, there's no control condition. So we have no way of knowing. Um, but mm-hmm. so what we do have though, are those very dire model predictions. And so we compare it to the dire yep. model predictions and that's how we gauge our success. And that's sneaky because we could have made those predictions to be as crazy as we wanted to. I mean, the only thing that keeps the upper bound of the worst case scenario where it is, is just sheer credibility. Like if you said hundred million, a yep. hundred thousand million or bazillion or whatever, people would be like, okay, that's, that's crazy. Um, so they just got to yeah, keep it down yeah. to some reasonable number. And then it's like, there's your comparison group, right? It's a prediction from a model. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Quarantine the earth. It's a threat to intergalactic health. Exactly. Now there, there, there's this <laughs> other Dave manipulative step to this tactical use of the models. And uh, you will see. Yeah, let's, let's unpack that. Yeah. You will see that they will continually revise the models to further guide our behaviors. And so revisions of the model mm-hmm. Uh, to slightly better scenarios are meant to encourage us to continue with the lockdown because the revisions mean that the lockdown is working or that's how their that's their communication value right it's like giving people a small reward for their behavior oh you guys are doing so good so now our projections are going to be a little bit more optimistic or a little bit less pessimistic and listen on cue here's dr barbara yaffe i think that's how you say her name she's ontario's chief medical officer of health listen to this So everyone needs to continue to stay home as much as possible, maintain physical distancing to ensure that the province continues to stop the spread of COVID-19 and flat the curve. These actions are making a big difference and you need to stay the course and stay strong to save lives. Dave, she got it all in there. It's working. We have to therefore continue the lockdown to flatten the curve. That was even in there because you got to save lives in 24 seconds. (laughs) That's that's right. That's right. Stay afraid. Stay indoors. Yeah. And I'm still not quite sure how flattening the curve is going to save lives in this case, because we're not seeing an overwhelming (laughs) demand on the healthcare system. And remember, flattening the curve just spreads deaths over a longer period of time. Ah, yeah. yeah, that's right. And and it we, we're going to have to get into the different uh, theories on the COVID itself, because you have to take some of that into consideration as to how this could possibly play out. But but uh, let's leave that for another episode and just focus on the messaging for for now. Yeah, that's right. And, 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 and in this case, just to bring it all sum up this section here, we're talking about these models computational models and how they're used to create scenarios that are then used to manipulate us to behave in a particular way. So they're tools of behavioral manipulation. And you have to watch Mm -hmm. out sometimes because sometimes the model predictions are even like just complete nonsense. Um, In a recent forecast, the government of Canada, they released these projections. So they got the regular curve, they got the flattened curve, and then they give you this this little tiny green, tiny curve, okay? The little green curve 
which is meant to uh, indicate that you would have very few incidents if we completely isolate, if we really did a good job on the shutdown, like if we really isolated. So we would actually, what they're saying is not just flatten the curve. They're saying we will reduce the incidence rates. Okay. Yeah. Except as we've heard from our other experts, um, the only way to keep that going is if you keep everybody locked up indoors indefinitely, right? Yeah. And you would have to have like hermetically sealed, you know, complete shutdown. Nobody's going to stores. There's no doctors, nothing. Because it's impossible to isolate everyone to the point that infectious disease, as infectious as everybody's claiming it is, is going to be stopped from spreading, right? Like, you just can't, you just can't do it. And in fact, uh, here's uh, Nut Witkowski one more time on this. Why doesn't containment work for an airborne disease? You cannot stop the spread of a respiratory disease within a family. And you cannot stop it from spreading with neighbors, with uh, people who are delivering, who are... Uh, physicians, anybody, people are social and even in times of social distancing, they have contacts and any of those contacts could spread the disease. It will go slowly and so it will not build up herd immunity, but it will happen and it will go on forever unless we let it go. Yeah, so you can't stop it. And here are 12 seconds from Dr. Bhattacharya from Stanford. You can't eradicate it if it's, let's say it's 1% or 2% of the population. You can't eradicate the whole thing. You can't just isolate and it'll stop spreading altogether. It's not zero spread when you have a, a quarantine in place order. Slow spread. Yeah, so it's slow spread. You can't stop the spread. So the this little green stop the spread projection, the models are, are projecting, that are being put out by the government are simply nonsense. And so, see, this is the thing, like people maybe aren't aware just how much nonsense is in these quote unquote scientific predictions, these model predictions, right? I mean, they can make that thing really yeah. say whatever they want to make you do whatever they want. Yeah, and so perhaps that little green curve is more telling about what they would like to do, what they would like to try to do rather than what actually can be done. Exactly, yeah. You know, it telegraphs a little bit about the mindset. And we'll talk about this now in the next episode when we talk about the opportunities and we talk about the shock doctrine and how that all works. Indeed. This is the Knock and Form Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. All right, Dan, another key tactic that we see in the messaging surrounding COVID in the mainstream media is this uh, this uh, attempt by the media to try to push us away from alternative information. Uh, the media is actively trying to continually send us back to suck on their teeth, so to speak, uh, and, and ignore any other sources. <laughs> <laughs> the COVID teat. <laughs> All right. There's another episode title. <laughs> Maybe not though. That one will get censored. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. And, and and now they're 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 even targeting children in this way. Uh, they're they're teaching children, okay, Dan, they're teaching mm-hmm. children how to shut down even their fathers, if their fathers raise information that's inconsistent with the view that's being peddled in the mainstream. And so wow. I got this clip from CBC, The National, uh, which which talks about how to deal with your dad. Listen to this. So what do you do when this happens? A loved one, let's say it's your dad, drops into the family group chat with something he thinks is real. 
It's something about China manufacturing the coronavirus. There's a link to a site you've never heard of with a message calling it scary stuff. So what do you do with this? Do you ignore it? Do you call them out saying how ridiculous you think this is? If you do that to your dad, you've actually shamed him. My name is Claire Wardle and I'm the US director of First Draft and we are a nonprofit that we help people navigate the challenges of misinformation online. What happens is that your dad doubles down on his view and he dismisses what you're saying. Use language that's empathetic and to say we're all in this together and rather than you're wrong, I'm right here with the facts because that does not work. So hold back on all that reactive talk. Maybe try something like this. Yeah, these are scary times. We're all a bit afraid, but let's be careful. What you're sharing is inaccurate and it feeds into that fear we all feel. Everybody's like anxiety is so heightened right now. People are sharing this stuff not for any malicious reasons, but because they're scared too. Sending more context could also be a good move, but don't drown them in evidence. Maybe send an article from a legitimate source quoting credible scientists on why the virus wasn't manufactured. Conspiracies can be just as infectious, just as dangerous as a virus, so you have to guard against them. It's very easy to just mute your crazy high school friend on Facebook or to leave a WhatsApp group where people are sharing false information. But right now, I actually think there's kind of a responsibility on all of us to help people understand that sharing that kind of information is increasing the level of pollution. Increasing the level of pollution, right? Don't drown them with the evidence. Don't focus on the facts. What? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Send them an article from a legitimate source. I mean, I get, I get the. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I just, I, I guess, I have to laugh because what else can can you say about this, right? I mean, how can first of all, how can these kids know what a legitimate news source is? Yeah. Uh, at that age, and and it, Dan, wasn't it one of your daughters that was told by one of her high school teachers that the CBC is the only unbiased news source in Canada. Isn't that something, something like, that? like that? Yeah. Yeah. They actually <laughs> teachers believe that there is such a thing as an unbiased news source. And you got to think about what legitimate yeah. source, if you're going to say legitimate sources, what are these? The WHO, which completely misrepresented the fatality rate of this thing that's, that's going around. And, or is it the New York times? Yeah. Right, which is selling us this flatten the curve nonsense. I mean, who who are you supposed to listen to? Uh, you know, what are these legitimate sources? Bizarre. Yeah, exactly. I I much prefer uh, the Dr. Scott Jensen, uh, senator from Minnesota's approach on this. And we played the clip, but I'll play it again. People's ability to think for themselves is paralyzed if they're frightened enough, and that's not where I want people to be. I want people to say, "We're going to get through this. I'm going to use my head." I'm going to go to different sources. I'm going to listen to different sources. And I'm going to think for myself because that's what America is about. Well, you know what? You can't think for yourself, slave. This is the Not Conform Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. Dave, I got one other thing to keep in mind when uh, we're considering the messaging surrounding COVID-19. And that's the scientific consensus statement. You want to be looking out for the scientific consensus statement, which is always dubious. Because if there was any strong evidence, you wouldn't need a scientific consensus statement. I've got an example of one here. This one appeared in The Lancet, which is you know a major journal. And it was on March 7th, 2020. And here is an excerpt. Quote, 
We sign this statement in solidarity with all scientists and health professionals in China who continue to save lives and protect global health during the challenge of the COVID-19 outbreak. We are all in this together with our Chinese counterparts in the forefront against this new viral threat. The rapid, open and transparent sharing of data on this outbreak is now being threatened by rumors and misinformation around its origin. We stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. Scientists from multiple countries have published and analyzed genomes of the causative agent severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 SARS-CoV-2 and they overwhelmingly conclude that this coronavirus originated in wildlife as have so many other emerging pathogens. This is further supported by a letter from the president's of the U.S. National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, and by the scientific communities they represent. Conspiracy theories do nothing but create fear, rumors, and prejudice that jeopardize our global collaboration in the fight against this virus. We support the call from the Director General of the WHO to promote scientific evidence and unity over misinformation and conjecture, end quote. <laughs> you gotta laugh. <laughs> ah, you gotta laugh at that ending, right? We we uh, support the call from the Director General of the WHO to promote scientific evidence and unity over misinformation and conjecture. It was the WHO that has been spreading misinformation and conjecture, as we noted, about the fatality rate of uh, this pandemic. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's just, it's just too good. Yeah. yeah. They go on. Go ahead. We want you, the science and the health professionals of China to know that we stand with you in your fight against this virus. We invite others to join us in supporting the scientists, public health professionals and medical professionals of Wuhan and across China stand with our colleagues on the front line. End quote. I mean, this is this appeared in a, in a scientific journal. Okay, <laughs> ah, so clearly they're responding yeah. to the rumors that the virus might have originated in the Wuhan lab and it might have been bioengineered. Yeah, I noticed that was also the messaging backup uh, in the from the CBC, uh, the National there that we just had a little while ago. They had a very specific mm -hmm. article, very specific thing that they were targeting. And uh, we'll talk about that next episode, but it's very ironic because they, they're standing in solidarity, but they're clearly not standing in solidarity with the numerous Chinese scientists who are willing to risk their lives and to go on record and blow the whistle on what's going on in this Wuhan BSL-4 lab. Yeah. And they're certainly not standing in, in solidarity with that Chinese doctor who first blew the whistle that there was a, some kind of a new virus outbreak who ended up being censored by the Chinese, harassed by the police, and then later died of the virus, um, trying to spread the word about fighting it mm -hmm. um, and there's mm -hmm. a number of stories like this coming out of china and so we'll, we'll get to these uh this this theory in the next episode um but uh, just continue with on uh, with your thought here dan before we get too sidetracked yeah well here's the important part when they say that scientists quote overwhelmingly conclude that this coronavirus or originated in wildlife end quote they imply that there's solid evidence that there was no human intervention, no bioengineering, for example, in the whole process. 
And when they make that statement, they provide a string of nine citations, which is meant to say like, yeah, see, there's the evidence. You go look at these nine papers and you'll be overwhelmed by the scientific evidence. And so, you know what I did? I went and looked at those, Mm -hmm. Uh, not all of them, but I started to go one after the other. I got through about three or four. And here's one paper. I think this was the second one on the list um, that was, you know, the citation for evidence that the COVID-19 virus is of animal origin, right? And not bioengineered. And this was a paper published in Lancet in February 22nd, 2020 by Liu and colleagues from the Chinese Center for mm-hmm. Disease Control and Prevention. And by the way, a lot of the early papers were published by these Chinese groups. Yeah, until they shut them down and told them you're not allowed to publish anything. Anything you do publish has to go through the government first. Yeah, there's some dubious things that went on there, and we got to get into that at some later point. Um, but what these researchers did was they took fluid samples from the lungs of nine patients and they isolated the virus and they sequenced the genome. So that's true. There are, are lots of sequenced genomes out there and actually from virus samples from patients from different parts of the world. And uh, I'll, I'll get a clip for the next episode for this because I, I do have a good clip source for this. But they're all loaded onto this uh, database that's actually hosted by the German government. Okay. The German government, mm. Dave. And, and and so there's, a, there's not one virus, right? There are many different strains of the virus and it depends on the country and the place and so on and they anyways so what they're going to do here is they're going to do quote a phylogenetic analysis of this covid genome that they extracted from these patients and those of other Mm -hmm. coronaviruses uh, to determine the evolutionary history of the virus and to help infer its likely origin okay so uh, they're basically taking the COVID-19 sequence, genetic sequence, and it's actually, it's, it's an RNA sequence, right? Because it's a, this is an RNA virus. And they take other known viruses and they look for similarity among them. And they apply some evolutionary, evolutionary assumptions to create a phylogenetic tree. Okay, so it's conceptually similar to the way that evolutionary biologists try to map out the evolutionary history of the creatures of the earth. So if you have a problem with that technique, your alarm bell should be going off right now. But, but the problem with the technique, of course, is that it assumes there is a phylogenetic association among the viruses. And so, of course, it's going to return a result that's partly recapitulating that assumption. Okay, so what do they find? So what they found is that COVID-19 is similar to two bat coronaviruses that were isolated from Chinese bats in 2018. So they found an 88% overlap with those genomes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they also mm-hmm. found that COVID-19 was more distant from SARS. This is SARS from the 2002-2004 outbreak, only sharing about 74% of, of genes with, with SARS. It's called SARS-CoV. Mm-hmm. That's what they found. But none of these findings rule out the possibility of some bioengineering or tweaking of a bat-based coronavirus. The data is consistent with any number of different hypotheses, Mm -hmm. but yet it's cited. This paper is cited as evidence that it's definitely from a natural animal origin, right? That it wasn't tampered with at all. Uh, And, but it just, it's, it's not conclusively supporting that conclusion as far as I can tell. And what's interesting is you read on in this paper, and if you get near the end, they say the following. Which, which kind of questions the official narrative. First, the outbreak was first reported in late December 2019, when most bat species in Wuhan are hibernating, they, they say. Second, no bats were sold or found at the Huanan seafood market, 
whereas various non-aquatic animals, including mammals, were available for purchase. So they're questioning the fact that this was a direct transfer from a bat to a human, which was the ongoing story at the time, right? And they're saying there were no bats uh, really uh, awake at the time, and they weren't sold at the market, but the Chinese government was saying is coming from the market. Uh, and then they go on to say that, uh, thirdly, uh, they argue that two most closely related bat viruses, quote, are not direct ancestors of 2019 and Okay, so this would be the scientific term for the coronavirus, COVID-19. So they're saying they're not even direct ancestors, these two highly similar bat viruses. That's interesting, right? Definitely. Then they speculate, and I'm quoting, Therefore, on the basis of current data, it seems likely that the 2019 NCOV causing the Wuhan outbreak might also be initially hosted by bats, so it seems likely, and might have been transmitted to humans via currently unknown wild animal or animals sold at the Hunan seafood market, end quote. Okay? So listen, notice the words. It seems likely and might have. They don't know. They are simply speculating at this point. And the, the whole thing isn't fully consistent with the story forwarded by the Chinese government, but it's almost like they're trying to squeeze it into that form the best they can, <laughs> right? But they have no idea yeah, where this virus yeah. came from. And so I just want to make this key point. What you always have to watch out for is one research paper citing the speculation of another research paper and implying that it's a fact. And this happens all the time. And if I go through all those citations, at least some of the ones I went through, it's the same thing. We sequence the DNA. It's similar to this, dissimilar to that. Uh, and then it's all speculation. It could have been this. It could have been this. It could have been this. So we actually don't know. So the main point is that the scientific consensus view is based on a consensus of speculation, not data-driven evidence. Yeah, and that's another key point here. Uh, we want to, uh, we should almost do a show uh, where we summarize some of these uh, gotchas that we unpack during the show, uh, as in, you know, how would they know? And um, this idea of consensus based on speculation. There's there's a whole bunch of things that hopefully as listeners, you're cataloging and thinking through because these gotchas will come up over and over and over again when you're, coming across these kind of claims in the media and the scientific community um, all over the place. Yeah. And the consensus view, the idea that because there's a consensus, that means that the consensus is true. That's a fallacy. It's actually a very old fallacy. It's been known for a long mm -hmm. time. It's called the head counting fallacy. Yeah. And it's just like, just because most people agree on something, uh, uh, the fallacy is that therefore that thing is true. That's not the case. And in science, as an example, over and over, we have many examples of how the consensus view turned out to be completely false. Um, so that's why we never in science should re be relying on consensus. And whenever you hear that, your alarm bell should go off. Now, interestingly, Dave, I just want to make one more quick point here. Mm -hmm. At this time, because people want information quickly, the scientific community is ramrodding papers through peer review. And there are a lot of preprints. These are papers that are posted online before they're peer-reviewed. And these seem to be influencing scientific discourse before they're properly peer-reviewed. And I found it interesting that The Lancet ran a, uh, a comment 
titled, quote, Early in the Epidemic, Impact of Preprints on Global Discourse about COVID-19 Transmissibility, end quote. And they write the following, quote, Our findings suggest that because of the speed of their release, preprints, rather than peer-reviewed literature in the same topic area, might be driving discourse related to the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak. Although our analyses focused on search trends and news media data as a measure for global discourse, it is likely that preprints are also influencing policy-making decisions, given that the WHO announced on January 22nd, 2020, that they would be creating a repository of relevant studies, including those that have not yet been peer-reviewed, end quote. Okay, okay, Dan, stop, stop for a sec. So what are you saying here? Are you saying that this whole process, this highly uh, touted, um, infallible process of peer review, uh, that in this time of crisis, we're actually getting stuff that's less rigorous? Yes. Am I, am I getting that right? You're getting that completely right. In fact, the, the review process is actually very valuable. Anybody who's done any science knows that it's a very valuable process, but it's still better than light review or no review. Uh, and so, yeah, during <laughs> yeah. this time, Dave, yeah. you got it exactly right. Scientific publications becoming less rigorous, not more. And so we have to be very oh, careful boy, what we're reading about and, and people making claims. The scientists say, well, it may or may not be correct. We don't know. Only time will tell. All right, Dan, before we close, I wanted to come back to the messaging, especially when it comes to the churches in our society. And I want to go back to the beginning here, or beginning of the lockdowns, when Ontario's chief medical officer strongly recommended, and that was the wording, it was strongly recommended to limit public gatherings to 50 or less. Um, and then in that same statement, he also said this, he said, I'm specifically requesting the closure of the following settings as soon as possible. And he lumped churches and other faith settings in together with the recreational programs and the other non-essential services. And, you know, this, of course, now this was at the time when this was a recommendation, not uh, not an edict. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, this idea, of course, reflects the secular view of church and religion, right? It, it, this is all non-essential. It's a non-essential pastime that you can do in your private. Just don't let it get in the way of your public life and and stop threatening other people with your religion, right? right. <laughs> the, the, their welfare and health. And and yeah, that that was that's the message that went out. And then the other hand, of course, the government said, well, all the essential services will remain open, right? And naturally, the liquor stores and the cannabis stores and and all that stuff, you know, people need their meds, yeah, uh, are part of that essential list of remaining open, right? Yeah. So you have you have churches that are non-essential and closed, and then you have yeah the liquor stores and Costco is open, right? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. That's right. That's right. And and when the lockdown came even further, it was it's even unclear whether you know pastors can be in their office when the church is closed, or whether they can record a and live stream a service. One of our pastors uh, uh, unfortunately took the initiative to call the Ottawa Health Authority, and, and the, the, the overzealous individual there told him, "No, you can't. You can't even be there. Just stay home." 
Man. Only for only for essentials. Yeah, you know. So so all over the place, we're getting this messaging that the essentials remain open, non-essentials close. And as a church, you guys are completely non-essential, right? I mean, that's the category. They know that's the that we know that's the category that the world wants us in. But the question is, where do we see ourselves, and what do we do about it? Yeah, right. What do we believe as Christians about what happens when we gather together um, around the Word and around the sacrament? What, what is this a supernatural event? Do we believe that Christ is present with us and with his people as we gather together or not? And so regardless of what the real dangers of COVID-19 are, and we'll talk about those in the next episode, the possibilities, um, we never want to forget that leftist slogan, you never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll talk about that more too. And we want to be alert against an attack on the church in the midst of this crisis, right? Now, we're not saying don't take it seriously and that the vulnerable shouldn't isolate and that you should, we should just forget about what the government's saying. We're not saying that. But, but what we do want to say is, look, given the, the messaging that we've deconstructed in, the, in the, just in this episode, uh, do we as a church want to be quick to comply, especially when we don't really have to, when the, 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 uh, in the beginning, the laws allowed us to, to still have quite a bit of room. Uh, do we want to be the first to comply or do, and do we want to be amplifing the government's messaging? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. What, what, what are we saying about worship and the gathering of God's people? What we call in our tradition, the divine service. And what are we saying? Are we saying it's a non-essential service that you don't have to worry about it? You know, the mining industry here is not shutting down. Um, you know, Dan, you mentioned that your uh, your payroll department isn't showing shutting down from what I what you've told me. That's right. The pay, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, I, I believe that this is precisely the nature of the spiritual warfare that's unfolding before us. Right. Costco is a more essential service than than what the church has to offer. Gas stations are more essential service. The pharmacies are more essential service. You know, the, the enemies of the church are testing us to see if we will comply with their messaging. Uh, the messaging that church services are non-essential. And, and unfortunately, some of our leaders seem to be too quick to agree with that. And, 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 and given the media propaganda, think about it. Think about what will happen if the majority of our people agree, if the majority of, uh, of the people in our pews agree. I mean, what is attendance going to look like two, you know, three months from now when we're all allowed to finally reopen? And and what are you going to say? This is what I think about as a pastor. What am I going to say to parishioners who head off to the cottage for the summer without any plan to attend divine service? You know, <laughs> what, what am I going to say to them if I'm so quick to actually say, well, let's shut down? Yeah. And, and you know, we're not here to, to shame those who are elderly and vulnerable and who, who probably... Uh, even in in the the people that we've quoted in a in a bad flu epidemic should probably stay home for a little bit. But we have to think about this as a church. Can we come up with a strategy to um, to recover the role that uh, faith historically has played in in uh, these kind of epidemics? And churches have cooperated in the past, but there was never this messaging of "you're not essential." We don't, you know, uh, shut up, slave, comply. Yeah, and we'll get into this a bit more detail in next episode on on how this. How, first of all, is what's the Christian response to the fear mongering, and what are some strategies that as churches we could follow in this situation? Yeah, I did find it to be quite disappointing how quickly the churches capitulated to the messaging because they closed up earlier than they had to, and it seemed like they did it enthusiastically. Um, and that, that suggests, yeah, not everyone, not everyone. Yeah. I'm just saying broadly, like quite a lot. Right. Um, 
And mm-hmm. and I, I think I can understand it, especially like when you really think to yourself, well, I want to be cautious and not hurt my neighbor, especially my elderly neighbor. Um, but mm-hmm. there are other ways you can handle that, right? Um, and in fact, the, the recommendation from epidemiologists who, who disagree with the flatten the curve notion, their argument is, well, what you do is you protect the elderly, you isolate the elderly, and then you put a lot of health resources for the elderly, right? And so you could leave churches open and uh, still have people attending. And um, anyways, there are lots of other solutions. I guess for me, the disappointing thing was just how quickly the churches basically parroted the government memes and then just closed up and folded. That's right. You know, if this goes on for a protracted period of time, some of the smaller churches, just like the, some of the smaller businesses, are they going to be done financially? Yeah, no, and this is this is the reality. And that's why it's important for Christians to actually grapple with the messaging out there and to try to try to get under it all and try to figure out what's really going on because uh, decisions uh, are, we're making decisions based on the propaganda that's being peddled to us. Yes. And look, this is propaganda in real time. It's messy. It's hard to know which, which stream to follow, which news source to actually pay more attention to and which, which ones not to pay attention to. This is how it's, this is how it is when you're living in the age of propaganda like we are right now. And so don't expect it to be easy, but, but at least make an effort to get as much, um, to broaden your scope as much as possible and, and to take in as much data as possible so that your decision-making is not reactionary, but is a measured response to the actual real risk that our society is facing right now. Dave, I think you, you really expressed that very well, because that's, I think, exactly what my feeling was, is that uncritically, the churches accepted sort of the government v- viewpoint and uh, shut down without really doing a lot of the deep thinking. Um, at least that the conversation was never there. Just these edicts just came down and at least in our church body. And uh, yeah, it's concerning. Dave, I want to make sure that next time, uh, hopefully in the next episode, you'll spend more time discussing sort of the spiritual aspects of this COVID-19 thing and how to deal with it spiritually. Definitely. But right now, I think we should conclude because we're way long than we usually are. There's just so much to talk about. So why don't I just conclude here with, uh, with a little summary and conclusion, and then we'll take it out. Sounds good. Okay, so in this episode, we deconstructed the messaging that's coming at us from government sources and the mainstream media and even the WHO about this COVID-19 pandemic. And hopefully that's going to allow our listeners to think about it at least a little bit differently than they may have before. And what we want to do in the next episode is go over the various theories regarding COVID-19, where it came from, and, you know, there are people out there uh, in, in some corners of, of the Internet and the world who even believe there might not be a COVID-19. We want to discuss that, too. And then mm-hmm. we plan to discuss the opportunities that COVID-19 provides for the elites of the world and maybe some of their agendas. Uh, I've got a great, Dan, I've got a great uh, segment on the shock doctrine. And if you don't know what that is, then stay tuned because it's quite eye-opening. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and Dave, as I asked you, maybe finally uh, you can end up on in the next episode on the Christian perspective on the whole matter. So that's the plan going forward. Dave, why don't you tell people where they can find us? 
All right. Well, just uh, go to nutconform.show. That's where you'll find our episodes and the show notes um, and all the information about the show, subscribe links and all that kind of stuff. So if you want to spread the word about the show, uh, just point people to nutconform.show. And uh, I want to thank everyone once again for all your emails and uh, the articles you've sent us, the uh, clip links that you've sent us, all that kind of stuff is, is very valuable. And uh, we're, we like to feature it on the show whenever possible. So that uh, you can email us at info at notconformed.show. Um, and with that, Dan, I think that's uh, another show in the can. All right, Dave, I will talk to you later. <laughs>